You're listening to The Brand Compass, conversations to navigate your way to building a brand fit for purpose and poised for success. Here's your host, Shelley Rosland. Hello there, my friend. I'm back again in your ears and thank you so much for choosing to listen to us again today. Now, in my last episode, I had Susie Sanders on who shared with us how she was growing her VA business through franchising. And today I'm going to lead on a bit more from that into a subject that you may not well have even thought about seriously before. And that is your intellectual property. When I worked in the franchising space as a consultant, this was always really front of mind when developing a franchise model because securing your brand and your model was a big part of the value that was built into your business. However, you may be thinking, really, do I need to think about things like trademarks and copywriting, Shelley? Yes, you do. And I'm going to tell you why in this episode, because there are a few things here that you need to be aware of. To help me navigate this topic, I've invited a lovely business friend to join me so we can get a good feel for the legal background to the realities that subject matter experts face when tackling this area. Before I bring my guest on, I want you to honestly reflect on the following. Do you have a visual brand identity? In other words, a logo. Do you have a framework? or a model that you've created that you use to work your clients through? Have you created a product or a service with its own name or identity? Do you have a podcast show or a blog that has its own identity? Have you written a book? Now you must have said yes to at least one of those things, okay? These are all things that are affected by what we're gonna talk about today. So let's get to it. And I'm going to bring on my guest, Stephen, who will be my conversational companion for this topic. Stephen is a senior associate at Howes Percival, a legal firm which has six offices in the UK and supports clients around the world. Stephen's specialism is in intellectual property and IT. He advises his clients on areas like registering and protecting their trademarks, IT and software agreements, and also in commercializing their IP. Stephen's married to Jody, has two small children, and lives not too far away from me here in Northampton in the UK. Welcome, Stephen. Hey. Hi, great. Thanks for having me on. Great. I'm really looking forward to this, Stephen, because it's me. It's quite a beefy, meaty subject, and I like getting into it too. And I don't get to talk enough with you when we do see each other in our networking meetings. But What I'd like us to do today is just try and simplify the area a bit for people so they don't get too overwhelmed. So should we pick up that conversation around, or kick off our conversation, sorry, around some broad concept definitions? So maybe walk us through what intellectual property is, what copyright is, and maybe also trademarking? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think historically people have assumed IP and particularly things like trademarks are are sort of the domain of big business only, but it's really not the case anymore. It's um, become far more normalized in sort of smaller and medium-sized businesses. You know, you see sole traders all the time with, with trademarks these days. So yeah, just running through, intellectual property is a really broad term just for sort of things you've created that is obviously taking an effort of your sort of intellect and therefore the sort of ownership you have over that. Now, I should caveat that by saying there's pretty much no protection just for an idea. It has to be embodied in some way in something. I'll get a bit more into that when I talk about the, the specific rights. But yeah, so the starting point is, have you created something? 
and then from there see what rights might apply and what, what you might need to do. The first one is, is copyright, which is sort of worldwide, there's most countries recognize copyright in some shape or form and there's international conventions covering sort of worldwide protections. But your basic point is if you create something, it needs to be embodied in something. So if it's literary work, you said writing a book, that's a great example. It might be photographs, pictures, logos. A lot of people don't think about copywriting logos, but if it's been created, then there's a good chance it's protected and it has to be original. So not something you have therefore copied and you can go down a whole rabbit hole of what constitutes originality, sure. but broadly speaking, mm. if you've made an effort to create it without taking too much from somewhere else, it's probably going to be original. And then there's some sort of more specific criteria, depending on who's created it and where the protection lies. But generally, if you're resident in the UK and created it in the UK, it's, it's probably covered. And the important thing to think about with copyright, certainly in the UK, is it doesn't require registration. So the moment you create something that fits the criteria, it is protected by copyright. So some people sort of yeah, start talking about registering it. And in the US, there is a register of copyright, but in the UK, there's not. So as soon as you create it, whatever you have done, if it fits the criteria, there you go. There's, there's the copyright and it, it invests in whoever created it. That's the starting point. All right. And then how do, how do we get to the trademarking then? What's the difference? Yeah. So, so it's funny, actually, you see it all the time where they're confused, even sort of big media outlets will write stories and they'll use the wrong one. Um, but generally speaking, you can have both in something. So the logo is a prime example where you could have created it and therefore you've got copyright, but trademarking requires specific registration. And it, it, it's not about the creation of something. It's about brand identifiers is probably the best way of phrasing it. So your most common ones are logos, brand names, business names, product names. It can be wider than that. So you've got slogans. Think about Nike's Just Do It. That's a good one. People have registered colors, just, just a color. Pines, I think, registered their color turquoise for foodstuffs. And even just Dynamo, you know, the Dynamo, um, is it Dynamo? Oh gosh, what is the name of the, you know, the plumbing? Um, it's that, it's that really neon orange. That's yeah. a very unusual orange. That was trademarked, wasn't it? I think it was. Yes. And, and, mm. you know, I, I have to say color trademarks do tend to be more big business. It, you kind of, because you have to be able to show that people have associated you with that color, you need to be quite well known for that's possible. But yeah, as I say, the main ones are product, brand, and business names, and logos. It's things that people see and they know that relates to your products or services. Okay, brilliant. So I think, um, is there any more you wanted to say on that? Sorry, before I... <laughs> Not really, yeah. It's just the broad case of if you have one of those that you want to protect, you have to go off and specifically register it in whatever jurisdiction you want to cover. So you can't just register it internationally. There is a system to kind of push it out more wisely, but you register it in a specific jurisdiction. Okay, and by jurisdiction, that's almost like lumps of countries, as I understood it, right? So... Yes, the so you've got and Europe the, and yeah. Historically, obviously, you've got UK lumped in with Europe as well, but that's now all has to be done separately. And then, yeah, Lovely individually, Brexit. you've got beyond that the USA, for example, and things like that. <laughs> yes, maybe let's make this even more practical now for for the people listening. So, generally, in the work that I do with clients, we spend quite a bit of time trying to really identify if they do have a a methodology because generally subject matter experts or consultants, or if you think in those terms, um, people who advise and guide people generally create frameworks or some kind of system in which way they move their clients through in order to, you know, achieve a specific outcome. And if obviously if they've been in business a long time, it's a proven model that works. 
And what I try and encourage them to do is really nail that down so that you can really identify it so that it almost becomes a brand asset. So what would your top tips be around, and we kind of call that a proprietary, it's a very big you know, phrase, but a proprietary framework or a proprietary way. So it's something you've come up with originally. What would your top tips be if people are you know, starting to do that, where they're starting to identify, actually, they do have a way that they take people through? You know, what are the things that they can bear in mind while they're trying to almost nail that down into a construct? So you've kind of got various points, really. So the first is to the extent that you can sort of express it in words or diagrams, those will then be protected by copyright, right? If they meet the, the, the criteria. And then that just exists then. So the moment you create it, that exists. Now, a good tip would be to, if you have got, for example, I don't know, something that rolls around pillars or you've got a diagram that you lead people through a flow chart, something like that, you might want to apply a copyright notice to it. So the common one is a C in a little circle, then, you know, the business or the owner of that and the year you created it. And that just puts everyone on notice that you say, this is my intellectual property. It's subject to copyright and you cannot copy it. It's not a legal requirement, but certainly from a practical point of view, putting people on notice that you're claiming that is, is a good idea. If you've written course materials, something like that, maybe a, a booklet or a book on your model and how you, how people can go through it again, subject to copyright, put a copyright notice on it. If your model has a name, that's probably where you want to look at trademarking that. So that wouldn't protect people from copying the model itself, but it would stop them using your name that people have come to associate with you. So it's sort of a fallback level of protection so that people even if they were to somehow try and utilize your model and you, there's things, you know, I'll give some more tips on how to deal with that, but they would at least not be able to use your brand name. And as a side point to that, if you haven't protected that with a trademark, it is entirely possible that you have some unregistered rights under what's called passing off. Okay. So explain that a little bit. Yeah. So passing off is, it's, it's very closely associated with trademarks, but it doesn't require registration. So a bit like copyright, it just subsists when you meet the criteria. And to be able to sort of stop someone passing off um, basically means trading on your reputation in whatever that is. And it applies mostly to brand identifiers again. And so you need to be able to show goodwill in whatever the kind of sign you're protecting. Again, most commonly brand names, business names, logos. And goodwill is just a fancy way of saying that you've built up recognition in it. So people see that and identify it with you. Usually that means things like turnover, marketing spend. Um, we actually had an interesting case in the firm about social media presence and a business had grown exponentially on social media, but without a great deal of marketing spend. And so the case, a lot of it revolved around that showing the goodwill. Wow. And then, yeah, it was, it was an interesting one. It, um, it went all the way to trial, which is quite unusual. Most cases tend to settle, but yeah, it was a bit of a, bit of a novel point in sort of, sort of showing that large presence online showing your reputation in that mark. And then you have to be able to show a misrepresentation, which is, have they used it in a way that has deceived people into connecting it with you? So if they've copied it identically, that's pretty much covered. And then the last one is damage, which just tends to follow if you can show all the other criteria. So what the main point out of that is, even if you've not registered a trademark, don't assume that you can't do anything necessarily. Um, it is better to register a trademark. It's an easier, more simple thing to, to enforce but it doesn't mean you can't if something really bad happens. All right. So I think that's going to lead nicely onto what I was, was going to move you on to anyway, was this bit of 
finding specific business instances where you would really, really strongly suggest that people go that extra mile and moving towards the trademarking. So, you know, I mentioned earlier franchising, you know, licensing, things like that. I know I've got a couple of examples I came across within clients. I was like, how have you not done this thing? Go and speak to these people immediately. (laughs) Which instances would you say top of mind if anybody was listening now and they think, oh, geez, I really need to speak to somebody about that? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. In what I do, we do quite a lot of enforcement work. So we tend to see when it goes wrong, as opposed to all the instances where people happily trade without you know, any issue. Let's learn from their mistakes. <laughs> but certainly your main business name and a logo, if, if you know, unless you're thinking of rebranding, if that's what you're going to stick with, it's quite a good idea to look at a trademark. They aren't enormously expensive, particularly if you're limiting it just to the UK. Then, as I say, if you've got a proprietary model that you have a name for, and it's getting well-known within your field, Definitely look at that. And then after that, it's things that associate with you. I think generally speaking, slogans, unless you're really big business, is not generally necessary. Yeah. And often you can't really, you know, I don't know, if, if your slogan was something like branding that speaks to you, you might well not be able to trademark that anyway, because there are some limitations on if it's descriptive or isn't distinctive of you. But certainly business names, product names are the two that we run into regularly uh, as people needing to enforce. Yeah. And I would say I found somebody who had created, I know my my audience, well, my clients aren't particularly product-based clients, but I do have a couple within our agency that are product-based. And I did have somebody that came to me for strategic consultancy and they'd been selling a product you know, it was a product that could be sold within salons and things like that. So, but they hadn't actually, and they were going to go global. They were busy talking to partners. So if anybody's listening and any of that's going on for you, even as a micro business, trademark, trademark, tra- protect where you can, I would say. Yes. Certainly if you're looking to sort of distribute it out more widely, as you said, franchising is a big one. People don't really want to pay for a franchise where you can't show that they can use that business name. Exactly. And it's got protection and things like that. So, and if you're coming up to selling a business, it's quite a big asset for the business to not say, you know, we have protections in place for our business name, our key product lines. You know, accountants will say how much value that adds, but certainly from a saleability perspective, it looks good when you, when you come to sell your business. It shows that you've been careful, thoughtful, and you protected what you need to protect. Yeah, definitely. Why we are bringing up franchising and licensing for everybody listening is because it could be a route to how you, number one, how you actually grow your business. So it's choosing a, you know, a structured business format of how you'd like to grow your business. So that's why this topic is important, even if you are a solo or a micro. But I think what's also important is that we just kind of keep things realistic for you when you are a smaller businesses. But also, like you said, Stephen, they're not massively expensive as an outlay, but actually what you should be looking at them as is an investment in the value of your business because going forward long-term, um, it's got, doesn't mean you've got to start fighting the corner, right? <laughs> no, no, you've got it there if you need it, but otherwise it just sits there and needs renewing every 10 years, which again, within the UK is, is not expensive at all, every 10 years especially. And it, yeah, it sits there if you need it and it's just like saying an asset on the books of the business. Exactly. Exactly. So it's definitely something I think about, particularly copyright. I think when you write books and things like that, though, generally copyright tends to be because you get all those notices in the front of the book and that when you publish, it's generally already enforced, isn't it? Yeah. So you certainly put everyone on notice. And um, I mean, we've all seen 
copyright is kind of getting more and more into the media, maybe particularly with music. Oh, you know, let's talk. But, let's talk about Ed, shall we? Yes, we shall indeed. Because <laughs> I know the most recent case was obviously out in the, the US, but he did have another case in the UK not lo- that long ago, a couple of years back, I believe, which I think was to do with his song, The Shape of You. And he's had to, to sort of defend claims for copyright infringement quite regularly because obviously it subsists as a point. So even if you're a, a, you know, a one-man band musician, you've created a song, self, put it out there, then you run into a song that's similar well, then you could bring a claim and you hope that it's got some, some serious value to it. And unfortunately, what we're seeing is because of the quantity of music out there and the value that people have seen, I think it probably all kicked off with the Blurred Lines case going back quite a few years now, where there was a huge settlement out of that. And people have become a bit enamored with the idea that they can generate some money here. But what's tending to happen is, you know, there's only so many differences within music. Exactly. I mean, obviously, there's a whole variety of differences, but you know, you've got only so many chords, the way they're put together. And so showing copying is actually much harder than people maybe assume. Yeah. And I think that's also what Ed was trying to prove by fighting some of these things in, in, in court is saying, you know, as an artist nowadays, particularly in writing um, music, it's more, it's more the, not the words so much as the chords, isn't it? Like you said, it's the music that he was, um, you had some other examples though, that you talked about before when we've had chats at networking. Do you want to share a couple more instances that just kind of reflect the importance of maybe protecting yourself and realizing what the reality is with court cases? That's absolutely it. Yeah. So there's actually been a few more interesting ones, sort of big sort of names or known things that have um, come out in the last six to eight weeks. So there was one which was to do with, and it's a, it's a little old now because it takes a while for cases to get to trial, but yes. someone brought a claim <laughs> to do with the John Lewis advert I was probably a good few years back now worked for the um, dragon in a Christmas advert that had a dragon in it and it was sort of this heartwarming tale of how he sneezed and breathed fire and annoyed all the villagers and eventually they all made friends and so on you know your, your, your typical heartwarming John Lewis Christmas time advert that we all look forward to and yeah. um, a self-published author brought a claim about it they, they had a book they wrote about I think it was called Fred the Dragon and it was a, again a story about a dragon who lived in a village and, you know, would breathe fire when he sneezed and caused a bit of sort of destruction and eventually made friends with all the villagers. So on the face of it, there were some similarities there. But what actually happened is John Lewis successfully defended the claim um, because the similarities were not huge. I mean, they were kind of conceptually similar, but John Lewis could show that they'd started developing the advert a year before the published book. Uh-huh. And even then, the book was self-published without a great level of readership. So it was hard to see how, given that they'd already started some work on it, the, the similarities that occurred after the book was published, they couldn't show John Lewis had really looked at the book, copied it. So it, it fell down on the idea of copying, which is what copyright protects. It protects you against someone copying your work. And another good example of that is a case about Silent Witness. There was oh, yes. an episode few years back now, I think, but again, it takes a while. And someone, uh, as sort of someone who's building a, a reputation as a screen a script writer and things like that, had written a, their own idea or a pathology sort of episode or se- mini series. And there were some similarities between what actually went out inside a witness and this person's script. And they'd sort of got storyboards and things like that. But again, it fell down on the idea of copying. Because the similarities were things like they were both about pathologists. Well, Silent Witness has been about pathologists for goodness knows how long it's been out, but quite a long time more than the last few years. They even went down to the detail of some scenes, which was someone opening a door into a dark room and turning on the light. That was one of the sort of the <laughs> scene directions in the script. 
And, and the judge actually sort of said, well, that's going to come up because if someone walks into a dark room, the first thing they're going to do is turn on the lights. Um, <laughs> oh, and dear. so they built this case around these sort of, and, and in fairness to them, there, there were similarities there. But what they couldn't show and had no case to show was that the BBC could have ever have seen all of this work that she'd done. And so they were relying on an inference that because of these similarities, that it must have been copied. But the judge was sort of saying, well, the similarities you can show me are fairly normal for a, a drama series. There's only so many things that sort of common themes within those sorts of series. So eventually, it essentially got thrown out quite early on, actually, because the judge said, I, I cannot see how you can show copying to me. But yeah, it, it's coming up more and more. Yeah, yeah. And I think, um, so I think what we can take away from, from the conversation today is, you know, almost like you just need to track your idea generation or your track tracking by, like you say, construction. So that might be even how things are saved. And you back, I don't know how old this was, um, Stephen, but back in the day, you had, was this right or was this my really bad memory? You had to actually print something and put it in the post and send it back to yourself. Like that, what, that, that was the thing? advice going back. Yeah, so you would um, print it off or, or handwrite it, put it in an envelope, and then it would be postmarked, and you'd send it, and it would come back to you with a date on it, and then you could show the date you created that work. Obviously, now we've got you know barcodes on that. Yeah, post. we've got metadata within <laughs> um, within anything you create on on Word or anything like that. So it's, it is a lot easier these days. But it is a good point is to keep records of what you create and when so that you know you can show when it was created and that it fits the criteria for copyright. And then if someone does copy it, certainly in terms of the, the proprietary models you showed, if you've shared that with someone and then magically out of nowhere, they start launching their own model very similar, right away you can show that they had access to your model. And that gives you a really strong case that they must have copied it. And then it's how much they copied it and then you know, the technicalities within that. But you're up to a great starting point if you can show access to, to, to your yeah. copyright material. So I think everybody listening is just to just really be conscious when you're creating something of value that is yours and then just in the back of your mind being really intentional about where that's being shared, who it's been shared with and keeping an eye out basically, isn't it? And like you say, you know, tracking your timeline a bit in terms of when you started doing that work. Yeah. And outside of that, you can do some other practical things. Like if, if you are providing a service where you're providing that proprietary model is within your terms and conditions, which you supply that under, think about having oh. some contractual protections because that might be more easier to enforce than a, an intellectual property claim. If you can show that you had a clause that says, I will not use your proprietary model to create my own, well, you're not having to show copying as such then. You can show that they had the model and they've launched their own. And as long as it doesn't sort of breach competition, and, and show sort of anti-competitive activities, it's, it's probably going to be easier to enforce than a simple copyright claim. So that's another thing is think about what your contract with people says and what you could have in there. And that goes for clients as well as I'm just thinking outside the box here in terms of the audience listening. And that could even be if you bring on associates, for example, to help follow your methodology, you know, to service your clients or freelance contractors and things like that. It's making sure all of those agreements actually have that stated quite clearly as well. Yeah. And freelance contractors actually brings up a, a useful point. If they're involved in the creation of any materials, is how yeah. within your contract, who owns the, the IP? IP for that. Because of within course. the UK, people often assume if I paid someone to do something for me, I get all of the rights. And there's an element yeah. of that in the US, but not in the UK. So if they authored the works and there's nothing in the contract and they're not an employee, 
they will actually own it. So yeah, certainly if you use contractors in any way, think about what they're creating, whether you need anything in the contract to cover that. Yeah, good point. Because I have had clients in the in the past ask because if we if we have some freelance contractors, for example, videography, photography, even writing, things like that, or you yep. you particularly tailoring something for the client, I do, you know, I try and stipulate that to the client going, look, I am creating this for you. You, you now own the, you know, yep. I try and state it myself. But no, it's a good point because I don't think very many people think about that element. No, we run into it quite regularly in practice. If someone comes to us with something that has been copied and the first question is, who created it? When did they create it? Let's just, let's just establish the position on ownership of copyright. And then yeah. you, you run into hurdles that no one was expecting right at the first stage. Um, and they, yeah. they can be solved. You can go away and try and sort out a later assignment. But if you just deal with it up front, much, much easier for everyone if you ever do have to, to enforce it. Gosh, there you go, everybody. There's your big takeaway as well. Um, Stephen, so like, how did you, because I'm fascinated when people go to university or when they, you know, you know, we don't all like grow up wanting to be nurses or have a purpose like being a doctor or saving the world. Um, you know, we, we end up being, you know, you're very, you are a lawyer, you, you consult, that's what you do. You are, a, for me, you're a subject matter expert. Like, how did you, how did you pick intellect? I mean, you don't grow up as a kid going, I want to be an IP lawyer. <laughs> No, yeah, I wasn't sat there five it? years old going, you need a trademark. <laughs> no, far, far, far from it. I, I basically, it was sort of a bit of an evolution for me, really. So I went off to university and actually studied economics originally and sort of got oh. to the end of my degree and went, right, so either if I want to become an economist, it's kind of go down the master's route and all of that. A lot of my sort of peers were going off and becoming an accountant and both my parents are accountants. The profession is great, but not for me. And so I sort of went, well... I've done a bit of work experience at law firms. I'm quite interested in it and looked into it a bit more. And you can basically convert across and start studying law. So I went through that process. And then luckily, part of the sort of procedure for becoming a solicitor is you do a training course, which is generally speaking, it's two years working somewhere. And for me, because I worked in private practice, I got to rotate around different areas to trolley them, basically. So you work within them. And I spent about three months in our intellectual property team here. And I found it fascinating. You know, you were dealing with some sort of complex issues, but it had huge variety. And it was a really developing area. You know, goodness, we're going to see over the next few years things relating to artificial, to artificial intelligence. Oh, I, don't, I didn't even want to bring that up today, creation. I have to say. Yeah, don't worry. We won't go down that rabbit hole because the answer is that we don't really know how it's all going to be dealt with. People have their ideas and we, you know, can have some educated guesses, but we don't know. But yeah, it was just a growing area and I tried it and I found that I, I really enjoyed it. The variety was brilliant. The work was fascinating. And um, thankfully there was a space for me and I got to qualify in well, four and a half odd years on. Here we are. I wish we could I wish we could all do that. It's just part of our degrees is like within the degree, you go and actually do a little bit of time in different areas. I think that would really help people nail down. I studied economics as well, but I sure as heck didn't want to end up um, on a training desk or... Yeah. <laughs> I, that was not my world to be, but oh gosh, thank you so much for uh, today, Stephen. I really think everybody should be at least grabbing at least one big takeaway from today that they can go and make their own after listening to today. But if somebody wanted to uh, maybe get in touch with you about protecting their IP or just want to have a chat, where's the best place for them to do that? Yeah, so all my contact details are on um, our website, housepersonable.com or uh, Stephen.roos at um, housepercival.com is my email. That's the easiest way to, to reach me generally. 
No, perfect. I'll pop that all into the show notes as well. But um, thank you so much. I've had a really good time, I have to say, and sharing your knowledge, which I really like getting into, like you say, because it evolves all the time, but you managed to really describe things in a really understandable way. So I think it's really easy for business owners to kind of really grasp the importance of what you advise them on. And I really love listening to the case studies that come out of court. I like, I get a real giggle out of it. They, they are the fascinating bit. I have to say, every time a new case comes out, everyone's still jumping to read exactly what's gone on. So no, well, I, I really hope it's helped some people and then given some people some direction if they, if they hadn't really given it much thought and so on. Perfect. Thank you so much, Stephen. Right. Well, thank you for having me on. For today, folks, so thank you so much for joining us. Did that help you to think differently about how to potentially create and protect your content, your material, and your brand assets? Who do you know that could do with listening to Stephen's guidance? Share this episode. Go on. You know you want to. Until then, stay strong, believe you have value, and protect it, and make good brand decisions. Thank you for listening to The Brand Compass. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to share it with your entrepreneurial friends and help them make good brand decisions. Until next time, let's keep the conversation going at shellyrosland.com.